Hello everybody and welcome to Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church with Nick and Mary Franks. Hello and welcome. Mary and I are both here together this week and we have in mind to go through the next little part now of our look at a book that is all dealing with textual criticism. I can't remember how many um, former episodes, previous episodes we've done, but we're now into the chapter to do with myths about classical literature. Most recently we did the one on uh, maths, numbers, that kind of thing, and mistakes about that. This book is called Myths and Mistakes in New Criticism. Oh. <laughs> We're just about to come to some uh, difficult words. Yeah, and that's setting and, us up nicely. And I've just stumbled over some of the most simple <laughs> words, so it doesn't bode very well. We're about, we're about to come to Thucydides. Yeah, that's that one is a real struggle for me. <laughs> Mary, Mary can't say it, his name. Thucydides. Anyway, this book is called Ma- Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful. <clears throat> it is. You tell tell everybody what we're going to talk about while I sort this out. Okay, so um, this is. Let me see. I think it's chapter four. I'm saying that, and it might not be. Um, yes, this is chapter four. So this is probably, I would say, um, the most well known apologetic tool that is used. I think would be fair to say, and this is where. People want to compare the New Testament manuscripts with the manuscripts of other ancient documents. Um, so that's basically what this chapter is about. Sorry about the background noise. I was sorting out my the height of my stool. Um, yeah, this this is a an episode that I think we're going to make. We're going to come to a, an interpretive point at the end of this episode that is less technical. We want to go through with you now some of the technical details of this particular chapter as it as it relates to a popular apologetic um, trope is the wrong word. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's it's a it's a common apologetic that's taught and handed down, and some and some of the bits to do with how this relates to classical literature as we'll cover today is quite technical as was the previous episode last week, you know, we're dealing with technical, academic, yeah. intellectual mm-hmm. things. And as such, the book that that we're showcasing isn't seeking to, to interpret or um, uh, provide a polemic for the church generally. But that's what we're wanting to do. And we'll come to a, a, a kind of big final point on this right at the very, at the very end. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll just go through, as we have done with the previous chapters, just some of the key takeaways that are given at the end of the chapter and then just have a little chat about some of these. So our first one, um, scholars and apologists often count all the manuscripts for the New Testament that exist, an inclusive count, whereas classicists generally only count the ones they need to use, a functional count, and this needs to be considered when comparing numbers. So let's rewind to F.F. F. Bruce's classic from 1943 or 47, I can't remember. In the 1940s, F.F. F. 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 Bruce wrote a book to do with the New Testament manuscripts and asked the question, are they reliable? 
Mm-hmm. And what's happened since the 1940s is that pieces of information have been passed down through not just apologetics courses or um, specialisms, but have passed down through the church. And they've drip-fed, whether that be through Sunday school or perhaps Christian Union or perhaps Sunday mornings in church, you know? They're releasing an FF Bruce's book from the 40s is a big driver in this. And again, we've referred to this, haven't we, mm-hmm. in previous episodes where that's not all altogether a bad thing. And this is the starting point. One of those big things that we remember, I at least I remember from as an influence there from that FF Bruce book, is that the biblical manuscripts dwarf classical manuscripts, both in terms of their the numbers, the data available, that you know, the number of manuscripts available, but also regards to when those manuscripts are from. Mm-hmm. So the date that they're of. And I think that's that summary that we were looking at earlier. Um, is really the starting point. I suppose it's the starting point and finishing point of this episode, isn't it? But but that that basically what the the authors of this book are saying is that that overall mm. point stands. Yeah. In that the biblical manuscripts really do dwarf the the likes of Epimenides or Thucydides or Heraclitus <laughs> yeah. or whoever it is we're Homer or Homer, who's a lot easier to yeah. to say. You know, the, the the biblical text that we have, the joy of reading every day, is really is that good. Yeah. That, comparatively. That's it, yeah. Comparatively. Yeah. And that, do you want to explain what we mean by comparatively? So when, um, when this argument is used, and this is what this whole chapter is about, is really about comparing accurately two different things. So what this chapter is often pointing out is where... Um, apologists have done this in an inaccurate fashion which then means that the biblical text is a bit vulnerable when it doesn't actually need to be. Yeah, but the comparative, let's just make sure people understand the com- so what the comparative is. And we were, one of the things we were going to do in this episode, and I think we, what we might do is just do it sporadically spontaneously, is do a role play whereby Mary is the faithful you know, pursuing faithfulness disciple of Jesus and I'm the kind of I forget the guy's name. He wrote the book um, Slating the Bible, but I'm an unbeliever. And you're talking to me about the, the reliability and you're, you're essentially repeating from memory what we've just said, which mm-hmm. is that the Bible, the biblical um, evidence for the manuscripts of the New Testament dwarf the likes of all the other historians um, that we don't ever question because mm. despite the fact that they're, they're weaker both in terms of number and also date. Mm-hmm. So the comparative, that's what we mean by the comparative, mm. isn't it? Yeah, just taking those two things and looking at the data around both of them and analysing basically that the New Testament mm-hmm. is better and the streets okay. above So I'm, I'm our neighbour, <clears throat> hates the Bible, doesn't want to listen to what we're saying about Jesus and you're you. So uh, yeah, these 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 biblical manuscripts. I can't believe, to be honest, Mary. I can't believe that you believe that book, given how weak 
It's just mm-hmm. Chinese whispers, isn't it? It's just been just messed up by men to say what what they wanted it to say. How on how can you base your life on that? Well, nobody doubts um, much of the information that is put into school textbooks or university textbooks. The data, the manuscripts that are used to talk about history, like what Caesar's Gallic Wars. Oh yes, I know it well. <laughs> which. Uh, dates to a much, much later period, centuries after Caesar was actually alive, but nobody questions the reliability of that historical document. Meanwhile, the biblical text has a much earlier date, um, within, in some cases, within even a century of the original text. The original autograph. I'm slipping in and out of role play here. <laughs> but, we, but you could say in that point to the person that will just... With no pre- you know preparation at all, just slate the Bible by saying, "Hey, do you do you believe in Julius Caesar? What do you mean? Well, do you believe that Julius Caesar was who he claimed to be, or that who who others claimed that he was? Of course, of course, I do. Do you do you think that when your children learn about that at school tomorrow, do you think that do you think you would apply the question of faith to that? No, why not? Because it's Historical fact. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then and then go in for the jugular, which is to say, right, your your whole view of something which is both numerically and from a date point of view chronologically weaker, you're viewing that as historical fact, but you're then saying that that which is um, more reliable, more reliable mm-hmm. is, is 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 spurious or nonsense or. So who's the idiot here? Mm-hmm. It's idiot. It's idiocy, isn't it? Well, it's just lack of understanding that like most people don't know about it or take the time. Like with so many things to actually. But people who write books about the Bible being false know perfectly well. Yeah, they do. That's true. So that like, people who who just want to discredit the Bible will know this information, and will just want to, yeah, disregard it or to even in some cases say things that are untrue about the Bible. And, mm-hmm. you know, anybody who's willing to actually find out about it will be able to do an easy Google search and discover, well, actually, the Bible's texts, the New Testament texts, are much, much greater than any other book. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So that's what they mean by the comparative mm. um, method of, uh, as, a, as a form of rhetoric. Yeah. Or just basic evangelism. And actually, this leads in quite nicely to this second point. Um, So apologists' numbers too often reflect this inclusive count for New Testament, but a functional count for manuscripts of classical works and end up comparing apples and oranges. Whichever count is used, one should be consistent on both sides. So there's a lack. We have a consistency problem, which hence the title of this book: Math, Myth, myths, and mistakes in whatever sphere it, it's in. There's a consistency problem, and it is so important because, as is mentioned in this chapter, if you rely, if you're using this as an argument, and you're speaking to somebody who's genuinely interested, and then goes away to then read up on what you're talking about, and you've overemphasized something about the New Testament text and underemphasized 
it it does make your argument vulnerable, you know, and uh, you know having complete transparency about this is what what makes it so compelling. Um, it doesn't need to be exaggerated or you don't need to underplay the manuscripts for other classical works in order for this comparative argument to, you know, to really stand out. Of course. Um, so that point is simply that what what tends to happen, and we'll put a finer point on this, as I say, towards the end of the of this podcast, is that where the Bible is being defended, the numbers are inflated, and where classical works of literature are being used as a contrast with the Bible, they're, um, uh, they're uh, uh, what's the word, opposite of inflated, deflated, yeah. you know, and, and that's a not a fair or honest no. or Mm-mm. consistent um, not at all. Uh, way of doing things. Um, and again, this actually links nicely with this point, this third point as well. So when counting manuscripts and giving dates for comparison, scholars and apologists also have given numbers that reflect or ex- uh, exaggerate the most recent discoveries for New Testament manuscripts, but do not check for updated numbers or dates for classical manuscripts. Consistency in comparison should be clear here too. Yeah. And this actually relates to the previous episode of the, this little series where we looked at the numbers and how being too accurate with the numbers actually can go against you. Mm-hmm. Just having a, you know, a generality is much better because manuscripts get updated all the time like new discoveries are made and then suddenly your number is outdated or so being a bit more general in these terms can be helpful mm-hmm. and also making sure that when you're doing your research that you're being fair to both sides of the argument you know not so it's not an argument but both parties that you're mm-hmm. not um emphasizing the new testament over other other documents because again you don't need to do that in order for this argument to stand. No, and you're, we're talking here about doing your research. I kind of think, well, effectively, what we're doing, we're doing research right now. And yeah. if you're listening to this podcast, thank you, because you're. this is an, in and of itself a form of research. So just recap from that last episode, the number of manuscripts, which which is a good number just to have in your back pocket when it comes to talking is... Um, 5,000. Yeah, so, yeah. so 5,000 manuscripts... Um, which again, remember, isn't necessarily full, you know, scrolls of an entire book in uh, perfection. It can sometimes just be fragments that relate that you know that form a, a kind a of, of. Mm-hmm. A, a textual uh, evidence of um, a greater whole. So mm-hmm. five thousand for the manuscript. So we're going to come now. We're, obviously, we're talking about dates and classical literature today, but let's just give an example of these inflated numbers because they are they're not small this is not like the actual number we should be quoting is 100 and somebody said 112 you know a relatively small um discrepancy so mm-hmm. have you got that to hand um no not to hand but i can remember it so um for one classical literature the now this is between different apologist books so this is again another example where the argument is undermined where apologists say different things about the same text. Yeah, and it, but but these are apologists who are living. They're current. They're quite recent. Amy, um, F. F. Bruce. Oh, well, I'm not uh, sure. <laughs> no, no, no. What I'm saying is that the Craig well, Blo- yeah. Craig Blomberg and Amy, Amy Orewing are both yeah. apologists, and they're both alive. They're both recent 
you know, we've read some of Craig's stuff to do with um, historic um, uh, premillennialism recently. You know, so he, the, these are these are current people mm-hmm. who are who are kind of making this mistake with numbers. Um, so one example, example yeah. um, with one, and I can't remember which ancient writer it was, Thucydides or Homer or somebody, and one of them quoted eight manuscripts for um, the piece of work when actually it's 251. And these are the type of... As in manuscripts available for this this, this non-biblical yes. text. So the updated text. number is 251. Yeah. And the author is writing eight or ten or whatever it is. So, so in other words, it's nowhere near. Absolutely nowhere near. Mm. And, and again, just is a really clear example where the argument is really undermined just for lack of, you know, careful research or double-checking your numbers. So if you're going to rely on a number to boost your argument, you've got to make sure mm-hmm. that you you say what the number is exactly, that you're clear that you're up to date with that, but also that you contextualise it as well, that you can say as of whatever date with, you know, knowing that that may change and making that clear to the person that that is something that can change. Mm-hmm. So the, the comparative method doesn't need um, fudging of numbers. And in the role play example, okay, let's just go into it again. So I'm now not, I'm not just a neighbour now who's got a general kind of trope in their mind to do with the Bible that's been passed down from, you know, atheist parents or whatever but actually I've done my leg I've done my groundwork and I know full well that I know I know all about Craig Blomberg and Amy Ewing, and I know full well that their numbers don't stack up in fact they're wildly wrong because I've done my legwork I know how many manuscripts are available for um you know for the Iliad or whatever it is so what's that all about well like you think the you think the bible's valid well it's a that's human fallibility you know people who haven't done their research properly and they're wrong somebody's wrong in that argument and they need to retract what they've done and make their arguments sound by correctly quoting the right number if they're going to use a number and the argument is not undermined by that but it is acknowledging that it's weakened by it because people have been careless with their research Sorry, I've just been distracted in my mind because I'm thinking of an episode in The Office where David Brent has to do a role play, <laughs> <laughs> has to do a role play on a training day anyway. Um, yeah, no, thank you for explaining that. I um, I can see now that your, your apologetic is sound. No, but, but it is. And it's the diff- it is the jokes aside, it's the difference, isn't it, between being able to stand up in a conversation with somebody's antichrist and and actually and there's nothing wrong with saying that something's wrong no you know like we we can't you know just because somebody claims says they're a christian and they're they're an apologist and they're trying to do these things it's still okay to say that they've got something wrong yeah you know whether in true error or not whatever it is Mm -hmm. you know you don't have to to just defend something just because no somebody said it you know and it's a very powerful principle that in life generally but particularly yeah. when it comes to spiritual things regarding the church to be able to admit acknowledge that that you were wrong or that somebody somebody mm. was wrong or that we were wrong yeah. you know and that that doesn't mean to say that the whole house of cards collapses 
It just means, in actual fact, it's the opposite. It strengthens the house, yeah. the house of cards. Hence, in our gospel booklet, we begin with an apology. Mm-hmm. It's for, exa- for exactly this reason mm-hmm. that it doesn't undermine or begin somehow with a negative. A negative that the kind of I don't know whoever would like people that don't agree with me that that's important. Actually, it's the op- it's the opposite. Mm, yeah. By evading that, yeah. you're, you're you're vulnerable. And how much better, surely, how much better to be able to just address the elephant in the room, exactly. even if it's the aggressive, you know, like Muslims particularly will will want to accuse Christians of being, you know, guilty of cover up, covering up sexual scandals or yep. child, you know, paedophilia or whatever it is regarding the Catholic, the Catholic uh, false religion, you know. Exactly. Well, to be able to acknowledge those yeah. things is, and so that's the principle, yeah, isn't it? Definitely, hundred percent. And again, we're interpreting academic work here yeah. in, into mm-hmm. a kind of, I suppose, a, a prophetic, straight pastoral polemic. Okay. So point four: uh, the comparative argument is valuable but limited. It can demonstrate only that the New Testament has a better textual basis than classical works, not that it has a perfect one. Text-critical methods are what give reliability to our use of the manuscripts, not the numbers alone. Indeed. So that is that is a really important point because I think you can overstate... The comparative. The comparative. Yeah. Like that's the kind of be-all and end-all. And of course it's not the... I think what this book is really pointing out is that it's a very multidisciplinary um, mm. piece of work and you can't reduce it down to just one argument like this. It's made up of multiple um, different points. So even to just, if I just quickly go to the contents, mm-hmm. you know, there's... Copying and so on. Yeah, the next upcoming um, well, chapters are going to involve things like dates and copying yeah. and the canon and translations and all of this because... All of these things together give reliability. So again, like the previous mm-hmm. argument about somebody wants to argue about all oh, the the date, you know, the numbers about such and such well, a thing, let, and, uh, and expect yeah. the whole thing to fall down as a result. It doesn't. Even if that num- even if that thing was wrong, you still have all these other elements feeding into the reliability mm-hmm. of the New Testament text, which means they're not vulnerable just by one mm-hmm. argument. So the role play scenario would be something like, I know I'm a critic of the Bible. I don't believe it. I don't believe in Jesus at all. It's a joke. <laughs> and I know all about textual criticism. Thank you very much. So knowing that even the on the best case scenario, that the textual um, reproduction of the, you know, the, the New Testament that you say is the answer to life and whatever, even, even when that, the best form of textual evidence is utilised, the end result actually is nothing like the original or it's sufficiently different for it to be significant. What do you say to that? <laughs> I'd say I haven't reached that chapter yet. <laughs> no, you've just given the answer. you just given... You, you said, you basically... It's the answer what you just said, isn't oh, it? Oh, I see. So you're not referring... To... I'm, re- I'm referring to the fact that it isn't just to do with the comparative yeah, it's, method. It's to do it's with to other do, things yeah. like copying... The copying, yeah, the, um, transmission, the copyists, kind of and yeah. so on, all these other kind of like it is a multidisciplinary answer because the this. numbers have nothing to do with the actual content of the text and the manuscripts, exactly. it's simply to do with how many there are. 
So you have to employ all these other methods in mm -hmm. order to really understand what's mm. happened. And it should be all of this, all of this should be bolstering our confidence to take the gospel to people. Um, and the fact that it isn't just to do with the comparative method of, mm -hmm. of you know, everything being relative, the Bible wins on that front, but it also wins on the content front as well yeah. and, and the reliability of the transmission copying mm -hmm. side thing, which, which yeah, we'll, come we'll come to. to so, it, yeah. so the overall point is to say the Lord has given us more than enough ground to stand on to be bold as lions, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, second last point is something we've already mentioned, but I'll repeat it because it's worth repeating. So the more specific your number is, the more vulnerable it is to a sceptic who wants to weaken your credibility. So again, this chapter really emphasises going for general numbers or if you're going to use specific, make sure that you contextualise it and give the specific dates and mm -hmm. allow the person to understand that these numbers can and do change all the time because of new discoveries. And that shouldn't just be applied to the New Testament texts. It should also mm -hmm. be applied yeah. to the you know classical literature as well. Right, final point. So citing a classicist on the issue has the benefit of showing that you've done your homework and allows you to give the year in which the data were published which allows you to make your point about the numbers, but which also allows some wiggle room due to the updating over time. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I think basically what this comes down to, and I, they gave an, an example um, in the last bit of the chapter, that if it's worth, if you're, you know, you really want to have your numbers and stuff on this, maybe focusing on one specific piece of classical literature and really knowing your mm -hmm. data about that one, one whether it's Homer's Odyssey or whatever piece you want to choose. And that means you've got a very specific example that you can then use consistently mm -hmm. and, and well, rather than trying to have maybe, you know, a huge number of different ones learned, you know, which is obviously much harder to do. And again, just being specific about the details and, that just shows to anybody that you're talking to, you're not just repeating or regurgitating things, you're actually demonstrating mm -hmm. that you know your stuff, you've done your reading and your research, mm -hmm. and you're not just kind of plucking stuff out of the air, basically. Yeah, there's no pressure to be an expert here. And if it is only a, a simple question of knowing where, you know, the <clears throat> excuse me, I mentioned the website we mentioned last time about this URL where you can go to the Munster mm -hmm. Library and check out certain numbers or, for example, the people that found certain manuscripts and then, you know, those, you know, MSS as it's abbreviated, those manuscripts have been abbreviated to the name of the person who found all that kind of stuff. You know, that is a simple evangelistic tool mm. that at the very least will give somebody something to think about. Yeah. And, you know, or, or the number of manuscripts that we have available are, knowing that that's 5,000 instead of saying 25,000 mm -hmm. is is correct. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, so we're not, we don't have to be experts on classical literature. You don't even need, you don't even need to be able to say Thucydides. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, <laughs> is that the last takeaway? That was our last takeaway. Yep. It's not the last point of this podcast. The last point is this, which is the, the concern that we have overall, I would say, Chipping, if you have anything on this, but to say that uh, 
to make the obvious point that the authors of this book are not interested, they're probably not even thinking about what we're thinking about. They're, they're very specifically focused on the subject at hand, the, the matters at hand, which is, as, we, as we're going through, have become clear. Our kind of burden, our purpose in doing these podcasts isn't just to strengthen our evangelistic resolve, it's, it's to also, um, I suppose, commentate and interpret what's going on within the church at large. Mm. And I think the thing that became clear to me just thinking about this earlier today and as we were discussing is this, and this ties into our wider um, ministry, it ties into what we say more broadly, whether it be on YouTube or in book form or, you know, is, is this, is that the church often come to a position on something without it being really the fruit of a solid conviction. What do you mean? Well, taking the example of the apologists, which I have to say the, the editors and the authors of this book have been, you know, they've, they've been gracious. They've not, again, they're not trying to, let's be honest. Mm. That's why I suppose that's where we step in a little bit to make, to kind of, make some connections here they're being gracious they're saying things like um when they're looking at these huge disparities in numbers that are very difficult to understand or explain to again to our role-playing mm. person who's against the bible how, how you know it's very undermining it's yeah, very it damaging is. isn't it, is. it yeah it's very very damaging what do you say to these people well you know take amy or ewing and craig blomberg's numbers in this specific example um, it's hard to understand how that's happened. These guys who've, who've, who are being gracious are saying things like, well, often apolog apologists are multidisciplinary. They've got limited research time. That was a specific specific mm. that this, this person gave. And therefore, they might not have had um, enough time to really drill into the numbers or whatever. I, I don't really buy that. You know, I, I find that's not to say that we don't want to be gracious, but I, I think this is just giving you insight into our conversations. It's, it's very difficult to to buy. You know, if, we, if we're wanting to be a credible witness at all levels, it's very difficult to believe that people who are professional enough, and let's be honest, these people are based in Oxford or they're, they're or thereabouts. Oxford is a world-renowned city for academia. Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're flying in these types of circles, you can't be flying in these types of circles and then turn around and say, well, I just didn't really have enough time to make sure my what I was saying was yeah. true. <laughs> you you can't function like that. Mm -hmm. Um so so it leaves us with the question of how how is it that these people then end up getting their numbers so wrong? And I think the point that, the, that this is all of this is making is that there's this thing called generational transfer, isn't there? People who are the apologists today were taught by previous apologists, hence F.F. F. Bruce from the 1940s. In a way, he has trained all of these different people who still quote him today. Um, and guess what? F.F. F. Bruce himself in the 1940s would have been trained by somebody else. So whatever, you know, whatever the, the nuances of these specific examples or the numbers, the, the point is that things are passed down generationally which are quoted as being fact mm. and correct when they're actually not. And the conviction for that being 
quoted, like they must believe it enough to write it in a book. I mean, who would want to write a book and put some stuff in which is going to be yeah. as easy as pie to, to point out as being false? So they must believe it's true that these numbers are true. Um, which says to me that a lot of uh, a lot of weight is put on the fact that they had been taught taught something by a former generation. Mm. Whether that be FF Bruce himself or others or people even before him. And it's to make this point that if that can be true, and I think it's demonstrably true, unless they unless they just hold their hands up and say, yeah, we, we knew that they weren't accurate or right and we mm. just we just fudged it. Mm. In which case that would undermine that would kind undermine of undermine the whole thing. Well it would it would undermine the whole thing, but it would it would cancel what I'm saying now, which is there's there's a there's a there's a more pervasive problem here an issue here which is that people i suppose to in in some way with good faith are publishing what they believe to be true because of what has been mm. handed down to them by their forebears but actually it's false it's it's wrong the numbers have gone wrong the end result is you might as well just be as as the guy says comparing an apple with an orange so if that can be if that can be true with with these academic things to do with one specific part of the Christian faith, why can't that also be true to do with doctrine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, People who believe that you can be a female elder today, why do you believe that? So the example, let's do a role, role play now. If, well, let's not bother, it will take too, too much time. But if we were to do a role play on that and we'd say, well, hey, listen, you believe that you can have a female elder in the church. Why is it you believe that? I just want to know what your conviction's based on. Well, I went to um, I went to his Bible college and there was this guy there teaching and or a girl a woman there teaching and they and they said that you know they just said that that was what they believed the bible was saying and i kind of just made some scribbles in my notes at the time and that's the answer that's what okay so your so your conviction on something like this is based on your training mm-hmm. your your education your theological education yeah it is mm-hmm. okay cool right let's go to the people that taught you and then you get you get maybe a thicker layer of skin with a generation once removed, maybe slightly un, slightly more unwilling to talk about what their convictions are based on, or where it is that they learn something, or what it all turns out. Oh, exactly the same is true from that for them. That's just what I was taught. That was true of the institution that I trained in. Or you can see you can make you can see my point. Whether it's to do with fudged numbers, to do with the number of manuscripts for Homer's literature or any of the, any of the classic literature, or whether it's to do with the, the basic nuts and bolts of New Testament doctrine, mm. the principle of generational error being passed on and, in a sense, compounded is, is the issue of the day, mm. is the issue of the day, which is why you have millennials today. And we're not picking on millennials. I, I can't, I'm a millennial. <laughs> you're, you're a millennial. I bridge into the millennial uh, generation. I, in fact, my, the year of my birth is 1980. It's the exact year that the millennial... Anyway, it's not just about, But if you go to a millennial today and say, hey, listen, what do you think about female elders? What do you think about homosexuality? What do you think about somebody having some quote-unquote trans rights? They'll be like, well not really sure what the problem is 
there's a couple leading a church. There's a man and a woman as a, mm. as a couple leading a church, and the woman is a bit more dominant by personality. She's a bit more masculine. She does more of the speaking. She has more influence over the what? What's the problem? What's the problem? It's because these people, these kids, uh, literally have known. They haven't known a world where that has not been the case. Never knowing society in which marriage is just between one man and one woman for life. Can you can you think about that, guys? Listening to us today, if if you're maybe in your thirties or forties or older, and it's like, can you imagine what these young kids are going through? Like, what the effect of this work of the of the enemy has been is that young people, kids today can't concentrate for more than two minutes because they've never known a world without a smartphone. Mm-hmm. They've never known a society in which marriage is between... Think about that. Such a, that's such a disaster. It's such, no, a, no. It's such a weight. Like they, they, will, they, will, they never have and never will know a society where marriage is just between one man mm-hmm. and one woman for life. So, so this, this thing of... I, th- I think this is so, so, so important. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, we've, we've, we're talking now beyond just yeah. New Testament mm-hmm. textual criticism. It's the point... And it's the point of the hour, which is that the church from the roots are being is being disrupted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you'd like to be part of our support team to help produce this content, basically what is a full-time volunteer ministry, please come through to our Patreon website where you can join a small team of supporters and help make this happen, basically. We're looking in the long term to reduce work in other areas for Mary particularly so if you want to help facilitate that we'd love to hear from you if you want to talk about that discuss that hear what our plans are for that please do drop us a line